1: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: You know, we have this gender-neutral word for mother and father as parent. It's like we just don't realise the power of it a lot of the time. We don't realise actually how much of what we call mothering and fathering is just parenting. Being trans and and giving birth to my kid, and I, I want that to be our normal and for it to be his normal.
0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Some Families, the podcast where you can get all your LGBTQ plus family news, insights, advice and support. I love being part of this community and with my favourite co-host, Mr. Stu Oakley.
3: Hello, Lottie, and hello, listener. I love being with you as well, Lottie, although again, we are recording Aww. remotely and I'm not sitting opposite you, but hopefully hopefully soon.
0: It's only a matter of time.
3: And regardless of where we are in the world, we have an amazing episode for you. But as always, before we get stuck in, I do like to check in Get a weather report, get my weekly Jeff's household omnibus, keeping up with the Jeff's. So how are you, Lottie? And more importantly, do you have a glass of Parent's Ruin with you tonight?
0: Um, thank you for being interested in my in my family life, Steve.
3: I'm more interested in what you have to drink.
0: What I have to drink is really boring today. I'm drinking a beer. Sorry to let the side down. We've got this idea of queer alternative to mother's ruin, which is some sort of fabulous cocktail but tonight my daughter wouldn't go to sleep and I didn't have time to crack open the cocktail cabinet. So a nice cold beer is what I'm, what I'm drinking this evening. Thank you for asking, Stu. I'm really good. We have finally got some childcare after almost three years of having a child Ta-da. without any help or nursery. And we have found a fantastic queer nanny who comes and does a few afternoons a week with us at home looking after our daughter. And it is absolutely fantastic and life-changing and um, brilliant. And she is great. DM me if you want her her info. It's a complete coincidence that she's queer. I was going to say, did you actually search out? No, no, not at all. We just went through an agency and she was the first person that came. And when she came through the door, I clocked a little pride flag on her trainers. And I was like, mm, OK. Let's let's just ask a few little questions and try and find out here without asking outright. And then she mentioned her girlfriend and we were like... It shouldn't matter, should it? It shouldn't make it. But somehow it's just, it just felt really nice. And it felt like we Mm. had been sort of like the gods of parenting had gifted us this, this brilliant person who also just happened to to completely get our family dynamic and, you know, want that for herself one day too. So yeah, it's been brilliant having her. But what it's meant is that (laughs) my daughter now thinks she has three mums because she's been calling our nanny mum. And then I'm mama. And then Jenny's mummy and our nanny's really sweet and she always corrects her and she says, what's my name? That's not my name. But um, I think now my daughter thinks that she probably has three mums. But you know, why not? Like, well, you got to <laughs> shove another <laughs> one in there. It's fine.
3: How about are there queer nanny agencies for LGBTQ plus parents who, for exactly the reasons that you say, just having that comfort of having somebody come into your house that Gets you and gets your family. I
0: think it's a brilliant idea. Can we patent this now before anyone else? Right. It's a great idea. Nobody's done it yet. Let's Doing do it. it right some, now. <laughs> <laughs> some families, <laughs> a childcare agency. Oh my God, it would be brilliant. Stu, how are you? <laughs> I'm really good.
3: We've had a great week. <laughs> Although one funny little moment this week. So we had our floors done a couple of weeks ago. And these two Let's say older guys came and and, and did the whole floor for us. And they were brilliant. And my husband, John, spent most of the time with them. And then they left. And then John came up to me and said, oh, I was laughing inside because he kept calling you my colleague which I just thought was hilarious. That's a uh, new one. He didn't know quite know how That's to... It is a new one. I've not had that one before. Like, oh, I was speaking to you. I would colleague. have like... thought
0: he'd gone to flatmate, flatmate first, or <laughs> manny even. Fre-
3: or friend. We've had friend a lot of times. Oh, is this your, you know, your friend? Maybe he thought, maybe I th- he thought I was the queer nanny because I was dealing with the kids.
0: Well, talking of colleagues, we got to catch up with one of our podcasting colleagues, Um, Mm. this week, Freddie McConnell. And Freddie, for those of you who don't know, is the proud father to a little boy, who you might actually hear in the background of the interview because he was up well past his bedtime, not for want of trying on Freddie's part, and he was sitting next to Freddie while we spoke to him. Freddie is a trans man, and his recent film Seahorse documents his decision to have a baby through to his pregnancy and the delivery. It's incredibly powerful, and you must see it seahorse made a real impact not only in the lgbtq plus community but beyond and brought trans issues to center stage and helped to educate people
3: it's uh it's a really beautiful film and and freddie actually now has his own podcast as well pride and joy which we love and if you love our podcast i'm sure you'll love freddie's podcast as well Freddie welcome to some families we have Freddie he is a podcasting pro under a blanket speaking to us now with his gorgeous little boy next to him who's having some sleeping issues that I think we've all experienced I think Freddie and I's sons are pretty much the same age so uh, I'm completely with you on that one Freddie.
2: That's good to know. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how this is going to (laughs) go. We might have a few interruptions.
3: (laughs) We'll have cameos from him. It's all good. So a lot of our listeners will be familiar with you, especially as many have listened to your wonderful podcast, Pride and Joy. But for those who may not, could you tell us a little bit about the journey that you made to transitioning and what it meant for you when you were thinking about your dreams of becoming a a biological parent?
2: There's so many years in, in my Process that it kind of feels weird to summarize them because I suppose it can make it sound as though it all sort of happened really quickly. So bearing in mind this is happening over the course of like ten years, (laughs) so I transitioned when I was like in my mid twenties, and I sort of did that before entering the world of work, which was really handy and just kind of just I suppose luck and the way the stars aligned. So when I entered, I became a journalist. My first job was at the Guardian. By that point, I was already sort of medically transitioned and you know fully kind of living as who I am today. So I worked at The Guardian for six years and about halfway through, I went to Australia to work at Guardian Australia. And that was around the time that I was really thinking about like, you know, I really wanna start a family and I don't really know how. And I sort of have, had been led to believe by the clinic that I attended to um, have get my testosterone and that kind of thing, that the testosterone treatment would make me infertile permanently. So I had written off the idea of having biological children because I couldn't afford to get my eggs frozen and that kind of thing. And when I was in Australia, I discovered some videos on YouTube from trans men in the States who were pregnant, and it totally blew my mind. It was kind of amazing and terrifying at the same time because it, I was just flabbergasted that that was even possible and, and angry that I'd been misinformed, but also terrified because I sort of knew, well, This is something I really am going to have to consider for myself now that I know it's possible because I have a really supportive network of like family and friends. So I kind of knew that, like, I think I could probably do this if I feel strong enough. Then my boss in Australia at The Guardian was really supportive and she sort of agreed to let me finish my contract a bit early and go back to the office in London. And then pretty quickly after that, when I was back home, I went to see my endocrinologist, just like a hormone doctor he was like oh yeah this is a thing some people do and this is just what you need to do so I stopped taking testosterone and within six months had conceived and then had my kid Wow! (laughs) and I was a single dad by choice and felt quite comfortable doing that that sort of felt like the right thing for me and and I am really loving it I have really loved pretty much every minute of it ever since
0: and Freddie Do you think that trans people are now being given better information and advice? Obviously, you were told just incorrect information. And has that changed, do you think?
2: You know, I I don't know if it has, honestly. I I fear that trans men going to NHS gender clinics are still being asked to sign a consent form, which basically says that they understand that, that the wording of it is is sort of vague but it's sort of the understanding is that you will no longer be able to have biological children and whether that's because they are trying to make us believe that testosterone does make us infertile or whether they are just assuming that every trans man is the same and therefore has exactly the same transition experience i.e once you start testosterone you never stop for any reason the end which just isn't reality for lots and lots of people for lots of reasons it's unclear you know i wouldn't want to sit here and say doctors really really just don't want us to have babies i think it's probably much more a case of a mix of misinformation misunderstanding lack of research and a really kind of old school way of thinking about gender and gender expression and family
0: <laughs> can i ask a bit about your experience of getting pregnant did you do ivf and how did, how was that for you and do you mind me asking how many rounds you did
2: yeah, sure. I actually didn't do IVF. I did IUI.
0: Okay. My wife did that.
2: Yeah. And, and that's, a, you know, which just sort of goes back to the point of when we say testosterone doesn't make us infertile, we really mean it. Like uh, the people, you know, that, that know that now we're sort of realizing as a community that actually it doesn't harm your fertility at all, or at least there's no evidence that it harms your fertility at all. So I didn't have any pre-existing fertility issues. Obviously some people will, but because I didn't, once the T was clear of my system, I conceived really easily (laughs) so I conceived on my second attempt with unmedicated IUI
0: wow brilliant Um, how old were you at the time yeah
2: I was 31
0: I think okay yeah yeah so a good age for yeah work yeah exactly
2: and 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 you know I definitely feel like I got lucky to an extent. But um mm-hmm. and actually some trans men it's worth saying I always want to say when I get the opportunity, testosterone actually isn't a good contraceptive even when you're on it. So plenty of trans men have the experience of getting pregnant while they're taking tea because you still ovulate even though you don't get a period. And then obviously they have to decide what to do at that point. It's uh, there's lots of information out that should be out there that isn't yeah,
3: in yeah. Terms of trans like fertility. It. And coming off of testosterone or tea is must be a huge huge deal if you're if you're on your journey to becoming a trans parent and you're faced with the prospect of of coming off of testosterone I mean what advice would you give um and how did you feel at the time because that is a that's a that's a big thing for a trans person right
2: so it can really be a big ordeal and it certainly was for me to stop testosterone but the idea that everyone's transition is different and everyone's experience is different is really really true and it's no less true in this situation so like I mean I suppose it's worth saying that like there's trans men who never go on testosterone so for them it's less of a big deal I know of a trans man who stopped tea to have a baby and then just like never went on again it doesn't mean that he's not trans or or a man and that's not how he lives but he just didn't ever restart it for whatever reason and actually testosterone sort of the changes that it brings about don't disappear when you stop taking it. It does feel I mean, to me, it was quite traumatic and hard. And I really felt aware of every minute little difference that I could feel in myself physically and mentally. But the outside world, you know, if I asked anyone or if I sort of said, Oh, I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling really dysphoric today, they'd be like, What are you talking about? You like, you don't look any different, you don't sound any different. So and I know lots of trans men who didn't struggle as much as I did, even if testosterone is really important to them. And I suppose like it's also worth saying that coming off tea is quite subtle compared to actually being pregnant. It was being pregnant that was much more that's when all the obviously you know, those other hormones kick in and you know, yeah.
0: And how did you feel about your body when you were pregnant?
2: Um, <laughs> complicated. So like linked to this whole the testosterone thing for me, still when I was pregnant, it was being off tea that was the hard thing. I sort of felt like if I could be pregnant and on tea, or just have tea in my system, then it would have been so much easier. I mean, I felt quite sick and I felt quite uncomfortable while I was pregnant. I didn't have one of those like walk in the park pregnancies that some people have. The dysphoria and the like, the gender bit of it, was really centered around testosterone throughout for me, and actually growing a baby inside me, having a bump, all those sorts of things were were quite novel and nice. And I actually found it really psychologically helpful to feel kicks and to be reminded of why I was putting myself through this. It was this weird split of like, it wasn't actually being pregnant. It was hard. It was everything else.
3: (laughs) And then outwardly as well. I mean, being pregnant, what was it like being out in public at that time?
2: I was really self-conscious because of the dysphoria. But at a certain point, I was able to sort of just accept that no one else was noticing it, like no one else could see what I, you know, felt inside sort of thing. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that I was never, ever read as pregnant when I was pregnant, (laughs) like by a stranger. And I think that's down to a combination of things. Partly I carried really small and I just am quite small. So I sort of looked like a small guy with a beer belly. Also, just the fact that no one looks at a pregnant man and understands that what they're seeing is a pregnant man, like they will come up with probably half a dozen other scenarios before they think pregnant man. So that's like a really helpful form of protection. So actually I never felt, and you know, I I wasn't being open about what I was going through at the time. <laughs> I'm probably like, well, the peop- there's lots more visibility for people having babies in the community now. So I'm not sure this would be the same if I go through it again, but yeah, at the time I didn't really have to worry about people clocking me. Or, or about my own safety, because there's like no one ever realised I was pregnant. Like eat the whole way through. I'm not exaggerating. That's, was...
0: that's nice. That's a, such a freedom. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things that I'm most worried about if I ever get pregnant, I sort of have a, a, a particular relationship with my body as being quite androgynous. And mm-hmm. I I just kind of can't stand the idea of suddenly being this sort of like buxom, like v- overflowing with femininity woman that everybody sort of makes assumptions about. So I think that even within the scale of like queerness and identity, I think probably there's a lot of women and fluid trans people who, who experience that different degrees of that dysphoria. Mm. And I'm almost jealous that you could kind of uh, hide it. Not that you were actively hiding it, but that it wasn't read.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that way. I kind of was actively hiding it in some ways. I was wearing really baggy Mm. clothes and trying to be as shapeless as possible. But I mean, it's weird. Like, yes, I definitely was saved the discomfort of people treating me in the way they treat other pregnant people where they sort of feel like they have ownership of your body and they touch Mm. you and that sort of thing. Like I never had to experience that. But at the same time, it's kind of sad because I wasn't liberated from my own dysphoria and sense of discomfort. So the whole experience was pretty awful and i was struggling the whole way through i wasn't really able to just relax and enjoy it and i hope if i go through it again i am able to yeah it's really interesting you say that because like i think that's a there is this bigger issue of all we see is a certain portrayal of a pregnant body Mm -hmm, and this idea of Mm -hmm. what it looks like i mean like my body didn't actually like i was still quite like i say small and i i like i sort out and i do seek out sort of representations of pregnancy that aren't just trans men, but that are like butch women and like they're like pregnancy is such an individual experience and people express it so differently. I just think, yeah, we have this like total poverty of of diverse representations, representations of pregnancy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Freddie, I wanted to talk a bit about the limits of language and the words mother and father. And do you think we'll ever get to a point where the signified is less rigid and we can open up the definition of those words to be more fluid and all encompassing, or do you think that we're stuck semantically with this quite archaic definition?
2: I, I think we have opened up massively, especially within the LGBTQ world. And I think for me it was really shocking to realise how how limited those terms still are in other realms like the legal realm. Like I actually sorry.
1: sorry.
2: Yeah.
1: Literally. Acclaim.
2: Bedtime. <laughs> you go upstairs, then I'll come up in a bit. Yeah. So, like, when I first started thinking about giving birth, I just sort of assumed I'd be able to go down as the father on the birth certificate. So I didn't think it was like that big a deal or really anyone else's business. And then I realised I couldn't. And then I realised a whole load of other things about how mother and father and parent are defined on birth certificates and on adoption certificates and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, like you have the lived reality and the social reality of lots of families that are really, like, I just think we're kind of there in many ways. And especially when you have non-binary parents using all sorts of words to identify themselves and kids like just totally getting it and going along with it and this sort of thing. But again, like not just the law, but actually I suppose culturally and politically we still have a long way to go. Like, I don't think the word parent gets enough credit. But the court case that I was involved in when the judge said, you know, that mother is no longer a gender bound term, which just to me seems completely absurd. You know, we have this gender neutral word for mother and father as parent. It's like we just don't realise the power of it a lot of the time. We don't realise actually how much of what we call mothering and fathering are, is just parenting. Oh, it's just I like so we've got agree. this blind spot. It's so true. <laughs> you know? It's so true. Yeah.
3: It's so true that word parenting just does cover so much and it should get used more. I think things are happening in that space to make it change, but there's still a lot a lot to happen and particularly for for LGBTQ plus parents as well so that they feel more included in things. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think it's really shocking to realise that like the fact that on a birth certificate still, like even though we have ways of sort of including LGBT parents and, and LGBT families, in giving them like legal protections the words mother and father are still exclusively reserved for cis heterosexual couples i I just hadn't realized that like because parental orders have parent one parent two adoption certificates have parent one parent two lesbian mothers who don't give birth are parent two you can only be a mother or a father if you're read as a cis straight couple
3: so talk us through then the case that, that you've got at the moment. What is your, for those especially as well that, that may have not been following it, like what is your ultimate goal for it? And what, what do you want to achieve, not just for yourself, but for, for other trans parents?
2: Um, well, the goal of the case has, has definitely changed over time. And that was like unforeseen. And I went into it thinking that I wanted to secure for my son or child at the time, because it was before I conceived, when it was still theoretical i wanted to secure a birth certificate that would be accurate and i kind of made a promise to my unborn child that i would fight for that because i felt like i had the resources to do so and the connections and that kind of thing to find the right kind of legal team and then sort of not until we actually got to court years later and i started realizing that like what the system actually says as it stands and how outdated it is and insufficient it is for all sorts of lgbtq parents but then also there was a moment in court when the government suddenly realized actually that this situation doesn't just affect men who give birth it actually that there's no legal recognition of trans parents full stop and that's really scary i mean except Mm. i should say where someone has become a parent before they transitioned because that's all the law really imagined back in 2004 when gender recognition was made legal in the UK. And at that point, not only, had, not only did I realise that, I actually realised that the case itself had sort of solidified that situation. That was really scary. That was really like, oh my God, I sort of felt like, what have I done? I've, mm. Trans people have been sort of flying under the radar where trans men that didn't give birth were registering as father because they didn't think they had to say that they were trans when they went to register their children who they'd had through IVF often. And suddenly the government came out and said, oh, well, actually, no, that's not meant to happen either. No trans man is meant to register as father. <laughs> so, you know, now the aim of the case that we're still fighting and taking the European Court of Human Rights is, is to just get, like, some legal recognition of the fact that trans people become parents in all sorts of ways and we shouldn't have to register uh, as our sex assigned at birth you know, in all circumstances. It's just, it's just bizarre. (laughs) So yeah, it's Mm. become a much bigger issue. And then obviously, like I said, I've learned all this other stuff about the ways that other LGBTQ parents are discriminated against in the system of birth registration.
0: When I went and registered my daughter's birth, having to put myself as parent too, I just felt sort of instantly demoted by that. And at the time I was like, oh, you know, fine. I'm lucky to have been able to do this at all. And then it's only when I've really started to think about it through doing this podcast and pe- talking to people like you to think, actually, maybe that's not OK. Maybe mm. I do deserve to be on my daughter's birth certificate as her mother as well.
1: Yeah,
2: it's quite a British thing to sort of like, oh, well, I, I should just be grateful. for what Yeah, do not want to cause thing. any
0: trouble.
2: And I, yeah. And, you know, maybe the best solution is for everyone to be parent.
0: I mean, the word parent is a really useful one. And I do. I'm happy to be. On the birth certificate as a parent it's just when it's used in relation to if it was parent a parent b but when it's like mother and then parent two mm. then it has a different weight i think is
3: that what it says on your daughter's birth certificate then lottie is it is it mother and then parent two yeah
2: it's such a mess and in, in australia and in canada and in a lot of the european countries it is all birth certificates just say parent one parent two um, and in lots of right. US states, it's parent one, parent two, or in US states, you can just decide whether to go down as mother, parent, or father.
3: So, how much support have you got on that case, Freddie? Do you, is it, It's not. Is it? You know, you're taking it to the European courts. Mm. Have you got others supporting you within that, or is it just you against the
2: system? Really? When it was in the UK courts, it, there was a possibility that the there would be only a solution for someone in my very specific circumstances, or there could have been a solution that would have made it better for transparency in general. That would have been sort of for the judge to say in in his or her judgment. I think when it goes to the European Court of Human Rights, there's much more likely to be uh, a broader decision that, you know, for instance, the whole reason that we have gender recognition in the UK is because the European Court of Human Rights decided at some point that, You could not have trans people existing in this intermediate limbo zone between genders, and governments had a duty to create a system of legal recognition. And in a way, having parents go back into that intermediate zone or that limbo zone shows that the UK didn't fulfil its duty when it when it originally had to create this system. So, I could see Europe, your European judges, yeah, making that kind of a broader decision of like, well, you just have to sort this out, (laughs) and it's not just about you know Freddie McConnell and his family this is about human rights in general so that that could in that sense i suppose going to europe is much more powerful as long as the uk government pays attention i should say as a family my son has his own legal representation this is something that's never really highlighted in the media he has his own lawyers his own barristers and 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 he, his interests are put for, first by them always even if they were at some point to diverge from mine in the opinion of his lawyers so, like, his interests are being represented separately, which I think is a, a nuance that's often missed and is really important. That's
0: very interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, you've been you've been fighting this case now, as you said, for a long time before even your son was born. I'm just interested in the, the emotional and, and personal toll that, that fighting this fight is taking on you, if, if indeed it is, and how you kind of just manage that anxiety on a day to day basis.
2: Yeah, it was strangely it, it, I think it felt the hardest almost before it started. So technically it was triggered by the registrar in my local town refusing to register me as father. It didn't actually start until that point so my son was sort of a newborn at that point. But before that, it was really unclear as to whether that would actually happen like there was a several moments where it seemed as though I would be able to register because the midwives in the hospital thought I would and also the registrar locally thought I would until they rang up the London Registrar-General and and then they then clarified the situation. So there were these weird, stressful moments at which I was sort of like, well, maybe it's all going to be fine and I won't have to go to court. And then it was like crushing to realise that Mm -hmm. actually, no, it was, was, you know, going to have to happen. And then ever since then, I've felt so supported by my solicitor, Andrew, and our incredible barristers, Miriam and Hannah, who specialise in human rights law and family law, respectively, and you know the uh, lawyers representing my son and really they do all the hard work you know there's there's very little I can do there's very little I can add except for my own sort of subjective experience and so in many ways it's felt like a total privilege to to be able to work with these people and you know it's like it's not surprising that the system fails trans people so I don't in a way, I, I don't really take it personally. It's quite easy; I feel to distance myself from the situation. I've chosen to fight it, and so yeah, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. necessarily like an attack on me. I don't really feel like I've got anything to lose, <laughs> you know. That's
0: yeah. great. That's really good to hear because I was worried that it would just kind of consume your mm-hmm. every waking moment in a way of just thinking about it and going over and over things in your head and when you're trying to get to sleep and stuff like that but i guess when you have a kid it's really hard to be overwhelmed by anything other than the kid <laughs> that's very true <laughs> like, it, really,
2: it keeps you grounded it keeps mm-hmm. you. In
0: the
2: i mean there have been there are short bursts of time when i'm worried about things especially when it was it came to the anonymity issue and i was worried about losing anonymity because of what it might mean for our safety and that sort of thing luckily none of those fears have been borne out but really, there's huge swathes of time where I'm not having to think about it at all, because, you know, the judgment takes eight months to come down. I just have to you know, just get on with life. So and in those times, I sort of miss my lawyers. So sort of, it's, <laughs> yeah, fine, it's a funny thing. And, you know, actually, the, I'm, so, I'm so deep into it now. And if we were able to get some positive change in the end, it would be so worth it. So I'm feeling quite motivated at the moment.
3: So Freddie, something that I often feel quite frustrated about as a, a gay dad is how I, it's, it's almost like it's celebrated when I do something that a, a, a mum would never get celebrated for um, and that dads are often seen as somehow less capable than mums. Um, so because of this, especially as a, as a trans dad, how important to you is it that people know that you carried your son?
2: I'm definitely really open now about being trans and and giving birth to my kid. And I, I want that to be our normal and for it to be his normal. And so generally, I don't feel like there's any conflicts between my transness and you know how my son was born, and the idea of being a dad, and and like I just, and that's probably because I I think the idea of maternal instinct, it's kind of it's just outdated, right? Like it's it, I get it, but I think it's again, I think it's just parental instinct. I don't understand why the idea of something like maternal instinct is still considered okay when it's not okay to assume that a, a woman's purpose in life is to be a mother, or, or that all women should want to have children. Like I, for me, it's just an extension of that, and and the idea that there's something essential about being a woman that gives you this instinct. But I definitely do think that there is a parental instinct if you are a parent and if you, yeah, it doesn't matter how your kid came into your life. If if they're your child, like you have that instinct.
0: I think most of us do. I, I have definitely kind of come across anecdotally some dads who are quite happy to just like lazily exist within the, the sort of societal stereotype of dads like, oh, he's trying his best. He's changed a few nappies. Like he, he's, look, you know, the idea that if you look after your child, you're babysitting or your daddy daycare or like you should somehow be congratulated for just doing the simplest of parenting tasks. And I, mm. I do know that some some quite unreconstructed cis heterosexual men in my personal experience have been quite happy to to sort of hide behind those stereotypes and have that define them as a father. But I can imagine a Stu and Freddie as dads like that must just be so frustrating.
2: Yeah, it to me it just feels that's just like an extension of toxic masculinity. Mm. Like, of course those people exist and it makes total sense and but I don't understand again, like why it's like the conversation hasn't really yet extended to fatherhood and, and and parenthood when it comes to discussions of toxic masculinity and sexism and yeah. Fatherhood seems to be this one realm where it's still okay to be completely just to fall back on stereotypes and and be lazy and and also to be rude in reverse, like about, you know, um, dads who are fully involved being sort of, annoying and um a bit wet and yeah you definitely
0: get that in tv shows don't you that there's I can't remember what that parenting show was that's it yeah where the single dad is just like some sort of mung bean eating guardian reading hippie
2: I feel bad for those dads who do exist in that state because I just I think it's so sad that you've you've bought this idea and why would you know any different because no one's ever telling you any different and you're sort of rewarded for this for playing this doofus role and you're missing mm. out on so much. It's So sad. I'm not trying to criticise them. I just feel like they're just missing out.
0: I just recently, two nights ago, through watching a random documentary about politics in Finland, on the BBC, <laughs> I learned that in Finland part of being allowed to transition and legally become your gender is that you have to be infertile and if it doesn't happen naturally you're sterilised and then I learned that this legislation is changing next year but it got me thinking about the the impact that 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 denial of, of rights for, for trans people to be biological parents must have on on a generation of people. And I just wondered if, if that was something that you were, I mean, of course you are, but if you were aware of and, and what sort of lasting impact you think some, some legislation like that might, might have on our community.
2: It's just horrifying. It really is. Luckily, mercifully, it was ruled illegal. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, uh, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that it was a violation of human rights to require that. And I mm-hmm. think before that, many, many countries in Europe had that rule including Germany, uh, Sweden, Denmark, all the, all the places you sort of think of as being more progressive. you know, France did until very recently. I think Sweden only actually got rid of that rule a couple of years ago. Japan famously still has that rule in place. And I think usually how it's, how it's in enforced, you basically have to have proof of if you're a trans man of having a hysterectomy. And, and I think, I'm not sure how it works with trans women, but I know that hormone replacement therapy in trans women does have an impact on fertility, which is like, a weirdly it's sort of an inverted example of like sexism in medicine you know is sort of interesting in the cultural mm-hmm. context and historical context on that front so yeah um it's horrifying and thank god it is mostly in the past um and i and i'm worried about the ways that it sort of exists in this country in an in a less official way because I don't think it happens anymore, but up until recently, trans men were told that they should have a hysterectomy after being on testosterone for five years because of an increased risk of cancer. And it's since been established that that's actually a baseless claim, and there's no evidence for that. But I've had trans men come up to me and talk about mourning the ability to have biological children because they had a hysterectomy, because they thought they were going to get cancer. And it's just, yeah. Um, hard to even really talk about, uh, and and then you know you when the UK government created a system of legal gender recognition, they were actually really proud of the fact that the GRA, which is what the law is called, didn't require sterilisation. Um, which is odd now when you think about like the lack of recognition for trans parents and actually how because the government now is saying, well, we will recognise your gender until and unless you become a parent so like in my situation i'm legally male but when i became a dad i reverted to female as far as the law was concerned i mean it's de facto sterilization they're basically saying you can be legally recognized unless you become a parent so you better not become a parent otherwise you get recognition taken away so there's all these bizarre ways you know as well as the really scary idea of like actually being forcibly sterilized medically there's still these like more insidious barriers to to becoming parents biologically.
3: There's just so many hurdles, isn't there? There's just, it's yeah. just, and I know that you've talked about it before in the sense of the guests that, you know, when you've had on Pride and Joy and things like that, like the extra effort and and also the, the drive and courage that people go through as LGBTQ plus people to, to have children mm-hmm. and that you have to really, really, wasn't it, I suppose
0: and what about doing it on your own? How has that process been for you i mean i'm I'm conscious when I say doing it on your own, you probably have your your real family, your chosen family, lots of support yeah. but have you have there been times where you felt lonely with it or that you kind of wish you had you were doing it with a a spouse or a, a partner? I think when I was pregnant
2: with my son, I was worried about exactly that and whether I would be enough and You know, it was when it was all just theoretical, I thought, well, I'm not... I don't know, is is this okay? Is it going to be okay? But the actual reality of it has been much less stressful and has just sort of felt like the right path for me, sort of from the start. Definitely, definitely it's been really intense at times. You know, right now I don't have another parent who could help put my kid to bed, so he's on the table over there. But... (laughs) Yeah, I I think it just suits my personality. I don't know, like I'm kind of an introvert. I, yeah, like I said, I live in this town with family and friends nearby. That's like my kind of ideal level of interaction with adults. I really love my son's company. And um, yeah, I don't know. This just works for me. And it's weird. It's sort of, I actually admire people who can maintain a relationship and learn how to parent at the same time I'm not sure I could do that
3: <laughs> would you have any advice then for or what would your advice be for for trans men who are thinking about becoming biological parents
2: oh god it's, it's hard isn't it it's such a sort of personal thing I, mean, I suppose like I just want people to know that they aren't the first person to think of doing this and it doesn't invalidate you know who you are It, it can be like for me it was a quite a pragmatic decision it felt like and still feels like you know you have the right to do this it's your body we all have the same level of bodily autonomy and no one else has the right to have an opinion about it and there are groups out there there's lots of secret groups on facebook there's people you can reach out to in real life especially on instagram sharing their stories
0: and have you thought much about as your son gets older how you will talk to him about your gender, your sexuality, your identity, and this experience for you of, of how he came into the world.
2: I mean, I, we talk about it now. I, mean, I talk about it. It's, it's not something I ever want him to remember learning about. I remember hearing about that idea in a sort of donor conception context that if a kid remembers being told that they were donor conceived, it's too late so we have books we have this great book called what makes a baby which is gender neutral and really beautiful and it's sort of like a book that any family created in any way could read and and use to talk about their own situation and we have books about with like trans characters and i just i don't really have a plan because i anticipate it being something that he's aware of from the start it would be great if there was more like things we could watch i suppose I'm still a bit surprised by the lack of LGBTQ family representation in like films and kids TV. I'm hoping that will change maybe in the next five years or so. I don't expect it to be super easy. I'm trying not to be naive about schools and that kind of thing. One of the people I once interviewed talked about having to basically become a school governor <laughs> in order for the school to really like take seriously the fact that they had different kinds of families attending in their community
3: I've noticed a change in my daughter's school already with the new legislation that came in in September with the fact that LGBTQ plus families are included within the relationship and families education. And there's been a great, yeah, it's been really positive actually. And I hope my school, not my school, my daughter's school is not just isolated within that and that there are lots of schools that are that are also being really proactive in supporting this new legislation. Cause it's really great and I really hope that it does right. make a difference to to for either for children like ours who are children of LGBTQ plus parents or for even for young LGBTQ plus children within school just to feel included right. and feel understood by their peers. Cause that's where the real change is going to happen, right? From From that next generation. Well, finally, then I mean we've mentioned it a few times throughout, but we are huge fans of Pride and Joy, and so insightful. Loved the episodes. What do you feel that you took away most from all the people that you spoke to during Pride and Joy?
2: There was one episode where I spoke to um, a mum called Anna, and she has I think she has four kids, and it was really interesting to hear her talk about very openly and honestly the struggles of being a parent, of, of being a queer parent of a kid, especially when they go to school. And it was her talking about having quite a bad experience sort of 15 years ago and then having a an okay experience and then having a really terrible experience quite recently, like shockingly recently at a school in London and then having a better experience most recently with her youngest. And uh, yeah, that kind of burst a little naivety bubble for me of just thinking like, well, everything's fine now, surely, you know, kids go to school and there's everyone knows that there's queer parents and uh, actually like probably not. So, yeah, I found that really helpful. I spoke to a trans guy who had donated his eggs, who, who doesn't plan on becoming a parent of any kind, but still was motivated to sort of help someone else in some way by, by going through the process of donating his eggs, which I just found so incredibly selfless and incredible. And then I spoke to an amazing couple called Ellie and Louie, who went who had a really awful experience of IVF, of of sort of yeah having to fight for IVF treatment on the NHS and having Louie's trans identity completely erased in that process, and having to go through unnecessary medical procedures in order to sort of qualify for IVF as a cis couple. But then eventually they actually decided to go down the route of adoption, and I just found their attitude towards creating family incredibly. Sort of humbling and inspiring.
0: I think it just goes to show how necessary and vital it is for us to be sharing our stories and even in those moments of discomfort where we wonder whether we're saying too much or getting too personal or revealing you know a bit too much about ourselves and our, our families mm. how important it is that to the extent we're comfortable to do so that we continue to do that because I think people really need it so Thank you for everything that you've done and that you've shared with us and and with your listeners on your podcast. Um, It really means such a lot.
2: right back at you guys.
0: (laughs) Okay, now listen up, class. It's time for Show and Tell, the moment when your hosts with the most share something that we think that you simply have to know about. Stu, what have you brought to the session today?
3: Oh, I love it yes Mrs Jeffs yes
0: I have been
3: banging the drum about the amazing Kiri and Lou to every single person that knows me if you haven't seen it it's on CBBS. it's about two little dinosaurs who are just so funny so heartwarming sing the cutest and funniest songs and I I finally got my sister into it this week as well with her new baby. It can be for all ages. I personally love sitting there watching it. They're only about five minutes long. But the thing I love most about it is just every episode has just such a gorgeous meaning to it and a message to it. With my favourite episode being one that is called An Ordinary Day. And it's about the character of Lou oh, I love who that is one. literally, because she's just this, she's having a really shit day. She calls it her humdrum ordinary day and she doesn't quite understand why she's having this ordinary day. But she's just sitting there on a rock and she's just having a day that we all have where she just feels shit, but she doesn't understand why. And this whole episode is teaching kids about, hey, you don't have to have a good day every single day and it's okay to feel rubbish. But they're mixed in with that She's talking to a dinosaur who has a flatulence problem and keeps passing wind and then sings a song about being Farty the dinosaur. I mean, tick, 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 tick.
0: (laughs) So I've brought to the group today somebody to follow on Instagram if you aren't already following her. She's called Arlene and she is a midwife for the queer community. (gasps) I've just realised she is based in New Zealand as well, which sucks (gasps) for us, but is great for Kiri and Lou. We definitely need to have her on the show because I love everything that she stands for. Um, I came across her through an illustrator I follow on Instagram called Jazz Moody, who does these incredible nude illustrations of real women. And she illustrated this resource that Arlene has put together um, for queer parents about the process of pregnancy and birth and it's not gendered it's not centered in heteronormativity and above all it's inclusive so it's like an uplifting celebration of queer pregnant bodies and the information and everything that it, it provides is you know incredible science based um, medical knowledge but just the way the language that's used is um, is just so queer friendly I mean it's not even queer friendly it just is outrageously queer and and that's such a novelty and i i would love to get my hands on a copy of her um of her book a compassionate midwifery service dedicated to the lgbtqia plus community so check her out on instagram she is arlene which is a r l e n e dot m for mother p w r nice
3: Nice. And if you have anything that you want to share with us or that you yourself want to bring to class, or even if you just want to say hello to us, which we love, don't be shy. You can find us on social media. We are on both Twitter and Instagram at Pod,
0: Or just send us an email, somefamilies at storyhunter.co.uk. And finally, you can check out our website, which is www.familiespod. Do you even need to say www. anymore? It's like so mad that we all still and, say it. <laughs> and my mum reads out an email address. She always goes to me, all lowercase. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, somefamiliespod.com. And we'll have another episode for you next week. Same time, same place. So if you liked what you heard today, then join us again next week and check out the rest of our series. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced and edited by Hattie Moyer. Some
3: Families is a Story Hunter production.